Welcome to Journey Through the Bible with Joshua Smith. The Bible is the single most important book in history. It is the very words of God put on paper. In this podcast, we will walk through the pages of His Word as we seek to understand His message to us. In Isaiah 55, 11, God says, My word that proceeds from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please, and it will prosper where I send it. As we study His Word, He will accomplish within us what He desires. That is our prayer. That is the journey. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Journey Through the Bible, where we love diving into the pages of Scripture because we know that it is God revealing Himself to us. Hey guys, this is Josh. I'm so excited that you've joined me on this episode. This episode, we're going to do something a little different than what we've done in the past. Typically, we're very exegetical in our approach to the pages of Scripture. Uh, we're diving into every uh, every passage, word by, word for word, sentence by sentence, to discern what God is saying to us. Um, but tonight, or this episode, we're going to do things a little bit more topically, no less biblically, uh, just a little bit more topically. Back in October, I had the awesome privilege of preaching at my dad's church, at Life Church in Winburg, Pennsylvania, and the Lord laid in my heart something that is has been near and dear to my heart for a very long time, for most of my life that I remember, and that is the topic of of revival. I'm not going to say a whole lot about it because, again, I'm going to say it um, through through the message. But but I believe and I know that we are in need of revival. Wherever you are uh, listening to this right now, we are in need of a revival. We are in need of awakening in our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God. And so my prayer through this episode is that you are awakened by God, by the Holy Spirit, to our need for revival. And you will join me in praying and in seeking the face of God, that he would revive us so that we may rejoice in him, as the scripture says, as we'll get into. But without further ado, here is my message from October of 2021. We need revival. Amen. One February Sunday morning in the late 1800s in the church in New Quay, Cardiganshire, a little village in North Wales, Pastor Joseph Jenkins stood in front of his congregation and asked for personal testimonies. At first, the pastor had his hands full as people would stand up and they would do anything but give their testimonies. And so he had to, uh, had to admonish his people, hey, I want everything pointed towards the Lord. And so followed an awkward silence uh, to this admonition that was broken only by a young girl named Flory Evans. She stood up and in a soft, shaky voice declared, I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart. A journalist who was present that day, W.T. Stead, he said this, The pathos and the passion of the young girl acted like an electric shock upon the congregation. One after another rose and made the full surrender, and the news spread like wildfire from the place to place that revival had broken out and that souls were being gathered to the Lord. Revival had been suddenly poured out among the Welsh people. And for the next year, over 100,000 people would come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a wide-sweeping revival. 
For that, for that time frame, within the cities and towns in Wales, bars and theaters were empty because everyone was in church in prayer and praise. At local football and rugby games, the audience of thousands upon thousands would just suddenly break out in hymns declaring praise to Jesus. The revival was so intense, the presence of God was so strong that at times people were heard crying out, No more, Lord Jesus, lest I die. In one town, there was a man who made himself known for being a skeptic of what God was doing around him. And in the middle of one preacher's sermon, he, he stood up in the back and he began to heckle the minister. He began to shout down the minister trying to, trying to get him to be quiet. His attempt was ignored, so he got out of his seat. He began walking to the front of the church. And I quote from an eyewitness who says this, as in the case of Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road, the Holy Spirit overpowered this man. He would have collapsed on the stairs had not the people upheld him, constraining him to cry out for mercy and pardon. What a scene followed when the people realized the full import of what had, what had happened. The shout went up, he has been saved, he has been saved. The minister who was preaching at that church at the time was a young man by the name of Evan Roberts. He was 26 years old at the time revival broke out, but he knew it was coming. You see, Evan Roberts had been praying for over 13 years for God to pour out his spirit in revival on his land. And in the spring prior to this outpouring, God had showed Evan in a vision what he was about to do among the Welsh people. For years leading up to this moment, he wasn't the only one praying. The churches around the world towards the later 1800s were praying for revival amongst the, their lands. And if we had time this morning, I could detail uh, some revivals that were happening all around the world at the same time. There was works of God in Australia, in New Zealand. God was working in Japan. There was a revival breaking out amongst the Chinese people. All around the world during this time, revivals were breaking out. You and I are sitting here in a Pentecostal church today as a direct result of the Welsh revival. There was a young man who was at the Welsh revival who then went over to Azusa Street and shared with the people of God there what God was doing. And Azusa Street was the birthplace of modern Pentecostalism when God sent a revival amongst his people of his spirit. My message this morning is simple. We need revival. We need Revival. Now, this is not a revelation. It's nothing new. If you've spent any time in church, you've heard messages of we need revival or revival's coming. I've grown up in church. I was born on a Saturday at 9.16 in the morning. I'm assuming I probably was in church about eight days later. I've grown, I've grown up in church, and so I've heard it time and time again that we are the revival generation, that God is going to pour out his spirit among us among, in, a, in a worldwide revival. At the same time, when I say we need revival, we all probably had some of the same thoughts run through our mind. Some of us may be thinking, well, look at the condition of our world. It's chaos. It's hectic. Things are, people have gone crazy. The world is on fire. We need a revival. Or others, maybe, look at the corruption in our government, left and right. We need a revival. Still others, maybe, well, look how sin is celebrated. Sin is demanded. It is promoted. It is increasingly accepted. We need a revival. 
While those things are true, certainly would not be factually incorrect in any of those thoughts. If you look at the history of revival, it is not the experience or reality of what happens outside these walls that necessitate revival. It is not the experience or reality of what happens outside these walls that necessitate revival, but rather what happens inside, or in most cases, what does not happen inside these walls that demand us as the people of God to seek revival. You see, revival is a unique need of the church. It is for those within the body of Christ who have tasted the life-giving water of his spirit, who have experienced the goodness of God, who know the way, truth, and the life. It is for us to demand the necessity of revival. And so I say this, we need revival, not because of what's happening in the world outside, but because of what is going on with his people within. If you look over the last 2,000 years of history, every major revival has begun in, though not confined to, the church. When I say the church, I mean the people, not the building. Every major revival has begun in the church. They have been works of God in which the initial work has been to awaken the people of God to God, to his presence, to his truth, and to his work in the world. Because you see, for us to say we need revival it proves a preceding decline. For us to say we need a revival, we are also in the same frame, in the same breath, admitting that the church isn't where it needs to be. To say we need revival is to say that, you know what, something has gone amiss, and we need God to come fix this. To say we need revival proves a preceding decline. And again, looking at revivals of century past, we see this. We can start at the very beginning of church history, 2,000 years ago at Pentecost when the church was born. Right? The church grew rapidly. It grew quickly all around the world where just over 300 years after the birth of Christ, Christianity became the religion of the Roman Empire. And centuries passed and the church began to fade and the church begin to stray from the message of the gospel. You get into the dark ages, the 900s, the 1000, the 1100s, and you, you begin seeing the church teaching that salvation was not a gift of God. Salvation was not by grace. It was not through faith. It was not a gift of God. It was something for us, the church, to sell you. And so the church begins selling these indulgences. And if you buy one of these indulgences, it's your ticket to heaven. Or you can buy one of these indulgences and it can get one of your dead loved ones into heaven. And that's what it had whittled down to. And so God used a man by the name of Martin Luther. Perhaps you've heard of him. He posted 99 Thesis on the door of a church one October 31st. And God used him and other men to sweep across the world in a revival that salvation is not a thing to be sold. It is not a thing to be peddled, but it is a gift of God freely given through the grace of Jesus Christ and accepted by faith. And we are sitting here today in direct relation to what Martin Luther did and what God did through those people. So we see the Protestant Reformation came as a result of a preceding decline. We can look at the early history of, of the Americas 
And we know we've all, we've all perhaps heard of the Great Awakenings, these two great revivals that God sent across our land and really across the world. You see, what was happening in the early days of, of America was the church became divided by class. If you were wealthy, you went to this church. If you were poor, you went to this church. And so there was this class segregation within the church. And furthermore, there was no sense of personal evangelism among the lay people. I'm not a minister. I can't do it. And so God used these great awakenings to awaken within the hearts of the people that, hey, we are all one at the foot of the cross. There is no rich. There is no poor. We are all one at the foot of the cross. There is no segregation needed. Whatever that means, we don't need it because we are one. And so God used this, these great awakenings in America to bring that unity and furthermore bring this idea that, hey, you know what? Me as a person, as an individual, I have a mission from God to evangelize and to share the gospel with the people around me. And it was out of these great awakenings that we even see the modern mission movement born. You see, even as we watched a video at the beginning of, of Devin and Brienne as they're working to make their way to Japan, that was foreign 300 years ago. That didn't exist in the world 300 years ago where you would send someone as a missionary to go reach a people for Christ. That was foreign. That was birthed out of the great awakenings. That idea of personal evangelism, it was something, the Great Awakenings came as a result or in response to a previous decline. And we can look at Azusa Street, right? The Azusa Street revival in L.A. in the early 1900s that brought along the modern Pentecostal movement. You see, prior to that, the church had become dead and the church had become dull. We had lost our power. We had lost touch with the reality that the Spirit still moves and the Spirit still wants to work in our lives and through our lives. And so through the 1800s, God began to awaken people. You can read about the, the Methodist revivals of the mid to late 1800s and see how God began to awaken hearts and awaken children churches to this need that the spirit still moves and the holy spirit works within us and works through us and then it all just exploded at the early 1900s and revivals all around the world and that we can trace our modern pentecostalism back to and now we come to 2021 we find ourselves yet again in need of revival we look around the church in our nation and we quickly can discern things we have lost. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. This is certainly not an exhaustive list. I'm sure I could bring any one of you up here and say, hey, you know, where, where do you feel that the Spirit needs to move within the church? And we could probably come up with a host of different answers. Right? But I'm just bringing out four that I really feel that as I look across the church in America, what have we lost? Where are we in decline? Where do we need God's Spirit to move? Where do we need a revival? How do we need God to work in our hearts? And the first is this. When I look across the church in America, I see a loss of missional urgency. Charles Finney was a great man of God. He was used in the Second Great Awakening to you know, just spread this re the revival. He says this. He says, generation and generation, millions of souls go to hell while the church dreams and waits for God to save the world without our using the tools he has given us. It is not for naught that Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, pray to the Lord of the harvest for the laborers. He says, the harvest is ready. The harvest is ripe. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. You see, the problem is not with the harvest. 
That's what Jesus is telling us, right? The, the problem is not with the harvest, and yet that's how I, I, I'm guilty of praying that way, right? Lord, I pray that you would just make their hearts ready. But Jesus is saying, hey, they're ready. The harvest is ready. The fields are ripe. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into the harvest. You see, what I see across the church in America is we've, we've distorted our focus a little bit. You see, our missional mandate given in Matthew chapter 28 is go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? That, that is our missional mandate. And yet what I see in America is I don't see a mandate to go. I see us structuring everything within the church as this come and see. Right? We, we create all these programs. We create all these elaborate structures. And then we hold up a sign and say, world, come and see. When all the while Jesus is like, that's not, that's, that, that's not what I said. That's not how I said it was done. And so we're, 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 we're so comfortable. We've grown so comfortable with this come and see mentality that it's normal for us. And all the while God's like, that's not how it works. I said, go and tell. And we're saying, come and see. You see, I, I, I've not read it, but I've, I've heard about the book that you guys are studying on Wednesday nights in your small groups, and I think it's just a wonderful, wonderful thought because you see, what we have done is in our minds we've created that this right here is an evangelistic opportunity, and it is, but we've created this as the center of that, but what have we done with Monday through Saturday? You see, the work of the church does not happen on Sunday mornings. The work of the church does not happen in this building. The work of the church does not happen at a service at 1128 on Sunday morning. The work of the church happens on Monday morning when you walk into your office and you're greeted by your fellow co-workers. That's where the work of the church happens. The work of the church happens on Tuesday afternoon when your supervisor comes up and says, hey, you didn't do that right, or hey, why did you do it that way? And you want to respond with anger because you think the supervisor doesn't know what he's talking about. We've all been there, right? We've all been there, right? That's the work of the church. Our response in that moment, right? How do we want to respond? Well, did you hear what he said, right? The work of the church happens in me responding with grace in that moment, and so we have created a culture in this country where church is a coming place when the church should be a sending place. The church should be a sending place. So what are you doing? What am I doing? Right? I point the finger at myself. Right? We were looking at this. Hey, we need a revival in, in, in missional urgency. What, what, what am I doing? When I walk into my job at Chick-fil-A, what am I doing to make sure that those kids that I work with Understand that I am a Christian, that I am a follower of Christ, and that if they want the life-giving message, I have it, I will give it to them. What am I doing? What are you doing? What are we doing? Oh, Lord, we need a revival. Oh, Lord, we need a revival. Not only that, when I look across this nation, I see a loss of scriptural authority. A loss of scriptural authority, not, not so much in belief, Right, I think if we all held up the word of God, right, and we was like, hey, do we believe this? We're all going to say yes. But when's the last time you made a decision that you didn't want to based on what the word of God said? Right, we have a loss of scriptural authority, not so much in belief as in practice. 
You see, the word of God is the standard. You want to know why the world is going crazy right now? It's because there is no standard. They have erased any standard of truth, and when there is no standard of truth, anything goes. And that's why we can go out into the world and it's like, well, you have your truth, and you have your truth, and I have my truth, and we all got to be good with it. No, the word of God is the truth. Is the truth. How is it changing the way we live? How is it changing the way we walk? How is it changing the way we talk? How is it changing the way we make decisions day in and day out? Are we making decisions based on the authority of Scripture? And furthermore, on kind of along the same vein, I see a loss of the supremacy of Jesus. Did you know Jesus was a king? That's not just something in the future, right? Jesus is a king now. And what we have is we have a message that being spread all across America that, that, that goes only as far as Jesus wants to be your friend. And that's the, that, that is the extent of the gospel message that a majority of churches in America are hearing, is Jesus wants to be your friend. And it never goes to the extent that Jesus also demands to be your Lord and your King. Is this okay? That, that's, that's a little harsh. It's a little harsh, I know. But did you know that as king, he has right to tell me what to do? Right? As king, he has a right to tell me how to live my life. Lord, send us a revival where we surrender to the kingship of Jesus. You know what? Something else I see is we have a loss of longing for heaven and a discontent with this world. We've grown comfortable. We've grown comfortable. We live in a, as of yet, free nation where we are able to experience some wonderful, wonderful privileges. The poorest among us are still richer than 2% of the rest of the world. And we've grown comfortable and the longing for heaven is somewhere back there in the back of our minds, right? Because it's, it's not always needed to be forefront because of my existence, right? But Lord, would you send us a revival where our longing for heaven is constantly at the forefront of our mind. This world is not enough. This world, it doesn't have anything for me. This world, it can't satisfy my deepest longings and my deepest desires. This world, it, it's, it's, it doesn't have it. Right. Only heaven. Amen. One day, we have something to look forward to. Right? We, we, need a, we need a revival of discontent with this world. Yes. When is revival needed? Charles Finney, going back to him, I'm going to be quoting from him quite frequently this morning because he was just so good. He just has so much good stuff to say. I, I thought about it one time. Well, I'm just going to go up there. I'm just going to read the first three chapters out of his Lectures of Revival book. That's what I'll do, but pretty much. I'm, I'm quoting as much, but uh, Charles Finney, he has a list. Of when is revival needed? When is revival needed? One, when there is a lack of love amongst believers. Two, when there are dissensions, jealousies, and backbiting amongst believers. Three, when there is a worldly spirit within the church. We'll just put America beside that one. Four, when there's a spirit of controversy in the church or in the land. This is all sounding familiar, isn't it? 
And his last thing on that list is when sinners are carelessly and stupidly, not in the sense of, of, of the, what today's connotation of that word is, but more of like a stupor, like a, like a drunken stupor, walking carelessly, sinking into hell unconcerned. Do, do the friends that you know that are on their way to hell, do they know that they are? So what is revival, right? I'm really big on definitions. I'm really big on defining words and making sure that we are kind of all on the same page as we talk about words. Uh, I've recently kind of begun to dabble in the world of etymology, um, which is a, kind of a, a side effect of my Tolkien fandom. Uh, but etymology is really cool. So anyway, defining, defining words is really important to me. So I want us to define revival because when we say revival, I, I guarantee you there's some different things that we're thinking of. Oh, yes, when I, I say we need revival, someone's thinking this, someone else is thinking that, right? You may be thinking this, right? So we're going to kind of define it so we can all come on the same page, right? So revival is a term many of us have used uh, for a series of services of a period, right? Of typically a couple days, hey, come to our fall revival next week. We're going to have so-and-so preach, and it's going to be great, right? Uh, for some of us, memories of Father's Day 1995 and the subsequent work of God in the Brownsville revival may come to mind. Services that are exciting and where the Spirit of God is moving, right? That must be revival. Or, or perhaps when you hear revival, you're just thinking of a deeper love for Jesus, a fresh realization of his goodness and graciousness. Well, to take the word back, revival, to the word from which it comes, which is a Latin word, and I'm going to butcher that because I am not Latin. I don't, I don't know. So revivere, revivere. You have your go at it. Um, you could probably do better than that, right? But it means this. It means to live again, to return to a flourishing state, to regain consciousness. Uh, the concept of revival in Scripture is actually an Old Testament concept. And the word we see in the Old Testament used for it really means to live again. So when I say we need revival, what I'm saying and what I'm meaning is we need to live again. We need to come. We need to return to a flourishing state. We need to come into a repossession as a body of Christ, of our consciousness. We need to live again. And then which brings me to Psalms 85 and 6. This has become just a mantra for me lately. Psalm 85 and 6 says this, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? This morning, my desire, more than anything else, I know there's any time you have a sermon, there's a lot of information relayed, but I, I want this to be more than an information relay. But my prayer is that this morning, God sparks within our heart a fire for this right here. God, will you not revive us again? God, will you breathe life back into us? God, will you return us to a place where we are flourishing? Return us to a place where we hear from you and walk in obedience to your commands. God, will you revive us again? Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but a simple, a simple word search on my Logos Bible software kind of brings up an interesting parallel, and that is between Psalm 85 and 6 and Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we're in the, we are in the creation narrative, and, and I love the way that, that the writer puts what, what God did, right? We, we, we read Genesis 1 through the 
creation narrative and we read how God spoke things into existence, right? Let there be light and there was light. Let there be land and there was land. Let there be the sun and let there be the moon and let there be animals and let there be fish and let there be this and let there be let that and and, and it all was. But what I love about the creation of man, what I love about how the, the author gives us what happened at the creation of man is he does not give us this distant verbal command that we see with the rest of creation, but he gives us a closeness and an intimacy. You see, he says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Right. So we have here the God of heaven, the king of the universe, taking up some dirt in his hands and forming us with his hands and then breathing the breath of life into our nostrils, right? If I'm breathing into your nostrils, I can't do that from far away, right? If, I, if I'm breathing into your nostrils, I, I, I have to be in close, intimate proximity to you. And so this is what I love about the creation of man, whereas everything else, he said from afar, let there be. But man, he came close and he brought us near and he breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. And so what happens is in Psalm 85, right, we're saying, Lord, revive us again. That word revive is related to the words in, in Genesis for life and living being. One is hey, one is high. So hello, right? Uh, <laughs> this, this word revive. So what we are asking for, God, will you revive us again? God, what, what, what you did back at the beginning of time, what you did back in Genesis 2, God, will you do that again? God, will you bring us close? God, would you bring us near? Would you breathe into us the breath of life one more time oh god would you do it oh god hallelujah hallelujah god will you revive us again something else about this passage i want us to see is it is a request by us to god it is not something for us to demand it is not something for us to boisterously demand of god God, we need a revival. You need to send it now. But it is something for us to get on our knees and humbly and earnestly beg, oh God, will you revive us again? You see, it is God who revives. It is not us. There's nothing that we can work up in ourselves to revive us. It is not something, some emotion that we can, that we can conjure up within us to revive us. It is only the breath of the living God on high who can revive us. And so when I say, God, will you not revive us again? That's what we're saying. God, will you breathe life into us? Humbly, we ask earnestly request humbly God we beg we need you oh God we need you oh God we need you oh God when I look around the world and I look around this country I am disheartened by by, by where, where we're at but guys the change starts here in every single instance in history right awakening is what the world needs. Right? The world needs an awakening, but we need a revival. Awakenings begin with revival. I want us to understand that. Awakenings begin with revival. It begins with us. But when we say it, right, we, we still, we, right, 
We still have these images in our mind when we think revival, at least I do, and so maybe this is just for me. But when we think of revival, right, we still have these images of excited services, of, you know, of, of maybe a couple messages in tongues and interpretations, and we have some, you know, some really exciting worship and our emotions are high. Right? That's what we think of revival, but that's, while could be part of it, is not revival. The reality is revival is hard. And so I want to bring us to an awareness that when we begin to cry out for revival, God, will you not revive us again? That there's going to be some steps that we will, we will take that are extremely difficult. And I'm going to use the word requires in these, but you could just as easily substitute the word uh, results in. Because it's, does, do, we, do we do these steps and then revival comes? Or does revival come and thus within we do them, right? You could say either or, right? So I'm going to say require, but you could just as easily say results in. But the first thing, revival requires pruning. I have two trees in my front yard, one that I hate. And one day we'll cut down and plant something else because it's those like really small. You don't, you don't have like beautiful oak trees in, in the middle of the desert, right? You have this like nasty little tree that has like these nasty little needles that get underneath the gravel. And I was pruning that tree the other day because it was growing a little, little wild. It was getting a little close to, to my roof, and so I had to, had to prune it back. Right? What, what is pruning? It's cutting back the dead things. It's cutting something back to get it to grow where you want it to or how you want it to. And when revival comes, pruning is going to take place. Pruning is a very difficult, very uncomfortable part of our relationship with Jesus. Because he's going to come in and he's like, well, that needs to go. That needs to go. That needs to go. And all the way you're like, ah, oh, no, I, I kind of like that. I kind of like that part. No, geez, no, no. Right? And so I want us to understand when we pray for the Lord to revive us, he's going to come. He answers, his, he answers prayer. He's going to come. He's going to revive us. But when he does, he's going to point these things out. And, hey, that needs to go. That needs to change. This needs to happen. And that's not always a comfortable experience. Back to Charles Finney. A revival always includes Christians being convicted. I hope this is okay for me to use. I don't know if it was used before, but oh well, we're family. <laughs> a revival, Charles Finney says, always includes Christians being convicted of their sins, leading to repentance within the church. It always includes Christians being convicted of their sins, leading to repentance within the church. It's so easy for us to say, oh, look at the world. They need to repent. When in reality, it starts here. Repentance in the church. Now, this, this next point, I think, will probably, uh, this may be the last time I see you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But... Revivals, when revivals happen, not only do they, there is there a pruning, but there is also a destruction of our idols. You see, we don't find ourselves in need of revival because we had our eyes on the right thing. I'll say that one more time. We don't find ourselves in need of revival because we had our eyes on the right thing. God is a jealous God. He requires, demands, and deserves our full surrender. And if we really believe that the steps of a righteous man are ordered by God, then we also, by 
relation must believe that he is going to order our steps in such a way that's going to take us away from those things in our life that we place before God. And when God comes and breathes into our life, there is going to be an acknowledgement. Hey, that's an idol for you. What? No, it's not. Yes, it is. Okay, okay, God. And there's going to be a destroying of that idol. You see, revival and idolatry cannot coexist. Revival and idolatry cannot coexist. And the simple ceasing of idolatry is not enough, but it requires the destruction of idols. We can look through the Old Testament and we look at the narration of Israel throughout history and we can see time after time after time they departed God for idols. And there were a few moments of revival amongst the Israel people. Kings would come and their hearts would be turned to the Lord and they would return the nation to God. But only in one instance did one king go the extra mile and remove the idols. And that is Josiah, King Josiah in 2 Chronicles 34, verse 33. It says, Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Now, there are at least three other kings that we see throughout Israel's history who had turned away from idols to God. But in those three instances, we can see in 2 Kings 15 and 4, 2 Kings 12 and 3, 2 Kings 14 and 4, that these kings did not remove the high places. Those are the high places. That's where they worshiped the idols. Charles Finney, again, Revival breaks the power of the world and of sin over Christians. They obtain a new vision and foretaste of heaven and new desires for intimacy with God. God, we need a revival. Would you not revive us again, O oh God? Come and break the idols of our hearts. God, come and break those things that we've allowed to become bondage in our hearts. Come, God, break them from us. What, what idols do we embrace? And this is where I'm going to get in trouble. What idols do we embrace? Well, comfort. Looking across this nation, how much of our energy, resources, money goes to comfort? What about liberty? If liberty, if the pursuit of liberty takes over our pursuit of God, what about the American dream? Pursuit of my personal liberty, the pursuit of my comfort. The pursuit of my desires has never in any instance been a catalyst for a revival. But you know what has been a catalyst for revival after revival? The removal of such things or the loss of said things. 
And so I'm, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to preface it. This is not, thus saith the Lord. This is not something I've heard from the Lord. This is something I see from observation. So this may be, it may not be, right? I'm just saying this from personal observation. What if, what if, what is happening in our nation? What if what is happening in the world around us is intentional by God to break some idols off of our hearts? What if what we're seeing happen in our country is God moving and beginning a revival and in doing so he's breaking some idols off of our hearts? Would we be okay if that were the case? Would we be okay if that was the case? Again, that's not a thus saith the Lord. None of this is, right? We have to test everything with scripture. But in observation, I'm, I'm, I... What if, what if, would we be okay with that? Revival requires the laying aside of our self-centered ideologies. You see, revival is not about us, right? And that's where, you know, historically, um, if you've grown up, particularly in the Pentecostal circles, if you've grown up, you're hearing about revival. Oh, that's going to feel so good. That's going to be so great. It's going to be so good, right? But no, revival is not about us. Revival is about reawakening the church to the knowledge and the glory of God so that the church will be the church. That is why revival happens. Revival happens because God needs a hot, on-fire church in the world in order to reach the world. God, would you revive us again? How does this happen? I was going to have like six or seven points under this heading, and all of them be pray. Because revival does not happen outside of prayer. There is no shortcut. There is no workaround. There is no other way. Revival happens in prayer. Revival happens when you and I get on our knees and we seek the face of God. We, we, we ram through into the throne room of heaven And we seek God's face. God, will you revive us again? That is how revival happens. There is no program we can put in place. There is no step one, two, three that we can follow other than pray, 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 pray. Let's go back to the point, right? Revival is not something for us to demand. It is not something for us to expect of God as if we were someone to ask. No, revival is a gift, a gracious gift of God because he loves us. And he wants And he desires for us to be alive and on fire for him. You see, he has our best interest at heart. And our best interest is to be as close to him as we can this side of the Jordan. Right? His desire is for us to be revived. He's waiting for us to respond. You see, what we think about prayer so many times, here's what we think about prayer, right? We are requesting something from God and then God acts based on our requests. I'm guilty of it, right? We're all guilty of sometimes going into prayer with this mindset that I'm going to request and then God is going to act based on my request. But more often, that's not the case. More often, what happens is in prayer, my will becomes aligned with his will. What happens is I see my desires fall off 
And I see the desires of the Holy Spirit become part of my desires. What I see is I, as I spend time with my Father, as I have this, these intimate moments with my Father, what happens is I begin to feel his heartbeat. And so my heart changes. I begin to sense and hear and understand his mind. So my mind changes. I begin to see how he would act in the world and what he would do in the world around me. And so my actions begin to change because prayer aligns me with his will. Charles Finney says this, if Christians begin to feel that they have no hope but in God, and if they have enough feeling left to care for the honor of God and the salvation of the unrepentant, there will be revival. Let hell boil over and spew out as many demons as there are stones in the pavement. If that's what it takes to get Christians to draw close to God in prayer, then so be it. The demons cannot hinder revival. Let Satan brawl and sound his horn as loud as he wants. If Christians are just humbled and pray, they will soon see God's naked arm work in a revival of true Christianity. It begins. It comes through. And it ends all in prayer. Andrew Murray says there is a church with its wondrous calling and its sure promises waiting to be roused to a sense of its wondrous responsibility and power. There is a world with its perishing millions with intercession, its only hope. Matthew Henry said whenever God intends great mercy for his people, he first sets them praying. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to get on our knees and seek the face of God as if our lives depended upon it? The lives of our children, the lives of our friends, our families, our coworkers. We need a revival. We need a reawakening in our hearts of the goodness and the glory of God. And then through it all, through it all in revival. We need to be selflessly selfish. It's not something we're encouraged to do very often, right? But here's what I mean. The we of revival begins with me. You want to know how Life Church is going to see a revival? It is by you experiencing a revival in your home. You want to know how the church in America is going to experience revival? It is by you experiencing revival in your prayer closet at home with your family. That is how revival happens. Revival happens personally before it can happen corporately. And what that does is that gets our mind off of, well, they need revival. I'm on fire for God, but that means those people sitting over there in the pew, they need revival. No, I need revival, right? It begins with me. And once the me gets revival, if every one of us, me's, get a revival and experience revival, well, guess what? We've just seen revival. We've just seen revival. Revivals have always engendered a deep and intense passion to see the salvation of the lost. Revivals have always engendered a deep and intense passion to see the salvation of the lost. Church, it's time to let go of the outrage. Outrage is the name of the game today. I work customer service, believe me. 
I tell people nothing has destroyed my faith in humanity more than working customer service. <laughs> so be kind, please. Where was I? <laughs> Thank you. In a world that thrives on outrage, because that's certainly the world we live in, don't you think the church should respond differently? But what happens and what we do so often is we turn this, we, we have this outrage, we express this outrage, and then we're like, well, it's just righteous indignation. Can I tell you that nowhere in Scripture that I'm aware of is righteous indignation ever shown to unbelievers? Look at Jesus. Well, I mean, they were unbelievers, in the, but they were of the church, like, right? Look at Jesus and the Pharisees. Right? It was to those who were supposed to be followers of God that the outrage was shown to. To the world, what was shown was compassion. To the world, what was shown was godly sorrow. And so my encouragement in this moment is, church, let's let go of the outrage. We'll let the world experience that. We'll let the world show the outrage. Me, I'm going to express godly sorrow. When's the last time that you shed tears because of what is happening outside these walls? When's the last time that we shed tears in prayer and just we're sorrowful and we're weeping? God, would you, like, would you see what's going on? God, would you save them? God, would you do something? Would you change them? Would you bring them to you? Because right? righteous indignation is not bringing them to Christ. But godly sorrow. And that's what happens in revival. You read the history of revival, and in every, in every instance that I've read, it's incredible how God changes the hearts of the church and the intense passion for the lost that comes as a result of God's reviving work. It truly is incredible. And that's how those revivals, that's why we call them the Great Awakenings, right? In early American history, they started out as revivals. They turned into awakenings because the church was awakened to the plight of the lost around them. Revival brings a return to God-focused living. Revivals are a reawakening to the knowledge of God. And so I just want to read a couple things that I, I wrote over the past year and a half. What if true revival doesn't look like religious fervor, excited services, or even an increase in the gifts or manifestations of the Spirit? But what if revival looks like less comfort, greater sacrifice, or an increased expectation to make less of ourselves? What if what's happening is meant to bless us, not curse us? What if it's meant to show us that the church is not a building? Well, we've been saying it, but can we honestly say we've been showing it? What if it's meant to call us out of our consumeristic mindset? The church needs to have music that appeals to me. The church needs to have ministries that appeal to me. The church needs to cater to my needs and my desires. The church needs to make me feel good about myself. The church needs to be the ones to spiritually feed me and my children. 
What if God is forcing us out of the comfort we have insulated ourselves in to wake us up to the fact that hiding in comfort is not the way the church is the church? What if God is forcing us out of the way we have done things for generations to prove to us that we have made idols out of the lights, the show, the stage, all that the church has become in America What if God is forcing us out of the building to prove to us that what matters in the church is not the meeting place, but the meeting people, the community, the care for one another, the love for one another, the concern for one another? What if God is using COVID, political upheaval, and societal disruptions to force us to our knees because we've been so busy wearing out the soles of our feet? What if God is calling us to himself? What if God is forcing distractions out of our way so that we are without excuse? What if this is how God is answering our cries for revival? What if this is how God is going to wake us up to the needs of the world around us? What if we didn't look at the chaos around us with negative mindsets, but awakening within us the need for true revival? What if this is what revival looks like? What if this is what the start of an awakening looks like? Would you be okay with that? Would you join in? Would you? What if you did? So my heart for this morning, and I've said it once, I'll say it again. I don't want this to simply be a relay of information, though information has indeed been relayed. But I want this. My prayer for this morning has been, leading up to this moment, my prayer has been, God, would you use this as a spark to spark within our hearts this desire to make this a prayer, to make this a heart's cry, God, will you not revive us again? Because we need revival. We need revival. So can we just take a moment and will you join me in crying out for a revival? God, would you revive us again? God, would you burden our hearts God, would you burden our hearts with the need to be reawakened? God, would you burden our hearts with the desire to seek your face? And Lord, cry out for mercy and cry out for revival. Oh God, would you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you. God, would you revive me again? God, would you bring a reawakening in my heart of your goodness, of your graciousness, of your power, of your might, of your glory? God, reawaken my heart to who you are. God, reawaken my spirit to the reality 
of your power. God, we need you. We are living in a world that we hardly know what to do with. Where we're seeing changes that we never thought we'd see. We're having to deal with questions and with choices and with dilemmas that are hard to imagine. And Lord, I believe what you're doing is you're stripping it all away so that we can really, honestly, truthfully say that you are all I need. Take the whole world, but give me Jesus. God, would you do it again? You see, that verse ends with, so that your people may rejoice in you. That your people may rejoice in you. You see, it all comes back to Jesus. It all comes back to Jesus. He is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. He's the one who started it all and he will be standing at the end of it all. So God, will you revive us again so that we may rejoice in you. So we can see the work of God in the body of Christ. And we can rejoice. Lord, look what you are doing. Look what the Lord has done. this would you join me in praying that prayer would you along with me make this part of your daily routine to cry out for God with no preconceived notions of what we want it to look like with no preconceived ideas of how it's going to come about. God, however you want to do it. God, however you want to do it, whatever it looks like, whatever it costs me, would you not revive us again, oh God? Because our hope, our hope is not in societal change. Our hope is not in political change. Our hope is in no other name but the name of Jesus. Right? We sang about that this morning. That is where our hope is found. So God, will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. Amen.
sorry, I said I was done. Because he wants you near. There was a message given out in the first service. And I believe it was timely. And I believe it was God. He wants you near. So when we pray this, we're not, we're not asking God for something that he is begrudgingly going to give us. He wants us near. And just like that image we have of God in the beginning, bending down and breathing life into the nostrils of man. Lord, that is, that is the image I see when I think of revival. That is the image I see when I think of this verse. Will you not revive us again? He wants you near. There is nothing he wants more. He, he delights in you. He rejoices in you. And so I want us to understand that it is his delight to answer this prayer. Right? It is his delight to answer this prayer. All we need to do is cry out. All we need to do is ask, is it is his delight to revive us because church, he wants us near. He wants us close. He wants to bring us up in his arms. My youngest is two. And she is as cute and as sassy as they have ever come. If we would have had our fourth, she would have been probably our only. <laughs> But I don't know if there's anything in this world I love more. And this is true for all my children. This has been true for all my children. And it's still true, all of them. My, my oldest, thankfully, is not old enough to stop doing this. I hope she never is. When I come home from work, you'd think it's the best time of their day. Daddy, daddy, daddy. They all come pick up my two-year-old, my nine-year-old hugs my waist, my six-year-old tries to climb on my back, my 11-year-old stands there and gives me a hug. Man, I delight in that. I delight in just the thought of that. God delights in having us close. He delights in having us near. So God, will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Because he wants us near. God, that you would revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you. I tell you what, guys, this has become a theme verse for my life. It has become a motto for me. I have it set at the background of my phone. I look at it every day. And I'm praying every day, Lord, would you revive us again? C can I ask at the end of this episode, would you join me? Would you join me in praying for a personal revival? Would you join me in praying this prayer that God, would you revive us again? And as God revives us personally, through our community with fellow believers, 
that revival will spread and that's how we'll see revival corporately so join me god will you revive us again amen thanks for listening